As you remain standing, I don't want you to feel left out, so I'll give the cliff notes to the children's sermon. Basically, I take my water that I usually have up here with me on Sunday morning, pour it on the carpet, shocking Donna, but I've told her it's been shampooed. It can handle it. But then I ask the children about water and the good things that water does. And this is the lazy man's children's sermon. They do it for me. And they remind me that you can bathe with water, which reminds us that God washes us and forgives our sins, washes away our sins. They, they remind us that you have to drink water, and it reminds us that um, God is essential to life. And then I ask them about what their yards look like, and they tell me the color. And I remind them that for growth and health, water is necessary. So we combine all those things for God. Basically, in the Western world, we describe God with phrases in our vocabulary in the eastern world they use pictures and so you can finish this children's sermon yourself as you go home and picture water and think of all that god uh, does through it but now as we come before god's word together let us do so by doing what jesus would have done which is to recite together the shema and we've added leviticus 19:18 to it i'll do a bit in hebrew invite you to follow me and then we'll do it in english together shema israel Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad, together, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture is about water. It takes place in the 20th chapter of Numbers. Now there was no water for the community to drink. So they rose in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community out into the wilderness so that our livestock and we should die? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt and lead us into this terrible place where there is no grain, no figs, no grapevines, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went straight from the assembly to the front of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said, Moses, take your staff and your brother Aaron and assemble the people together in front of the rock. Speak to the rock in front before their very eyes, and it will pour out its water. And you will bring forth water from the rock so that the community and their livestock may drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence as he had been commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and Moses said, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And he raised his arm and took the staff and struck the rock twice. And water gushed out and the community and the livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses, Because you and Aaron did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, I will not let you lead them in to the land that I have given them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Apparently, before Moses was born, Pharaoh's astrologers predicted 
that the God of the Hebrews would raise up a rescuer who would meet his end by water. And so apparently that's one of the reasons that Pharaoh decreed that all the babies of the Hebrews be tossed into the water, into the Nile River. But we know that Moses did not meet his end there. But maybe the astrologers were right, for it appears that Moses met his leadership end at the waters of Meribah by the rock. It's sad in so many ways because for almost 40 years Moses had led them so faithfully, led them in the face of opposition from the most, the most powerful man on the planet, the Pharaoh of Egypt, led them uh, even though they had revolted against God at the golden calf, led them even though his own family had turned against him, led them even though constantly they are whining to Moses about something. But he leads faithfully until this moment. And when he fails at this moment, he loses the right to lead them in to the promised land. This has, over the centuries, been one of the most difficult portions of Scripture uh, to interpret. When my son was asking me about the sermon, and I was explaining this story to him, he said, well, that's not fair. Moses gets punished like that for just this one thing after, after all that he has done. And as I mentioned, for centuries, people have tried to figure it out. In fact, the rabbis say this, when it comes to Moses... What he did was he committed one sin and gets accused of doing 13 different things wrong. Because there are so many interpretations. As someone reminded me after the early service, in Numbers 27, God reminds Moses, now you're not going in the promised land because you were rebellious. But the interpretations come as to what was the exact nature of Moses' rebellion. It's very clear that Moses disobeyed. Very clear. God told him, speak to the rock. He struck it. He was supposed to speak to the rock. He spoke to the people instead and lectured them when, when God had not asked him to do so. He was plainly disobedient. And yet I, I, can, I can understand that disobedience. Surely he's frustrated. There are in Scripture a dozen recorded instances of the people revolting against Moses and trying to take away his authority. This is just one of them. I also, there's recorded in Exodus uh, 17 where Moses is told to strike the rock to get water. So he'd done it that way before. Why this severe punishment? What is the exact nature of the disobedience that disqualifies Moses from the promised land? Well, here's a short answer. I don't know. But there are 13 different theories. And I want to give you a few of them because... If it's significant enough for Moses to be disqualified from leading the people into the promised land, whatever he did is pretty significant. And there are lessons that we as God's people should learn. So let me run a few of the theories by you uh, today. What was the nature of the rebellion? What was the nature of the disobedience? Well, one theory is this. It was just, it was anger. It was anger. And the scriptures are pretty clear that, that we will all be angry at different times, but we're not supposed to act out of our anger. In the Ephesians letter, Paul said, be angry, but do not sin. And he was hearkening back to Psalm 4, verse 4, where we're told, when you're angry, you should be silent upon your bed. Ponder it a while. Don't just act out of anger. 
One of the things that God's people and God's leaders should know is that God's goals are never accomplished by anger. It doesn't, it's the wrong means to achieve God's ends. Well, you might say, well, didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't he like take that whip and, and drive the money changers out of the temple? And we have all these pictures of Indiana Jones, you know, and, and Jesus has this long whip and he's driving them out like he's uh, on a cattle drive. Well, scholars believe that probably what Jesus has done is it says he uses cords. You'll remember that Jesus, as a faithful Jew, uh, wore little tassels at the, on the corners of his robes, real little thin strips of cord. They were braided in a way to remind people to obey God's commandments. So most scholars believe that Jesus took a little bit of braided cord, swept the money off with that as a way of saying, look, guys, you're not being obedient to God's command. Hardly a whip incident. And so sometimes when we look to Jesus to justify our anger, we may be overstating the case. So maybe it's anger. Maybe. Another theory is this. God says to Moses, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me in the sight of the Israelites. Some people say the problem here is that Moses' mistake was a very public mistake. You see, in Numbers 11, Moses already argues with God. And already shows that he really doubts God's ability to carry them through the desert, but God doesn't punish him. And the theory here is because that was in private. And that as leaders, as parents, as teachers, as administrators, as CEOs, as pastors, that our public actions are watched by people. And that the example we set for our kids and the example we set for people behind us is of paramount uh, significance. And so we have to watch our public actions. Uh, The illustration, I think, from our own history as a nation that that might sum up this theory for me is the the ongoing uh, uh, difficulties between President Truman and General MacArthur. And while they were private, MacArthur stayed in command. But when MacArthur made his disagreement and disobedience to the commander-in-chief public, he gets removed. The public nature of disobedience is something that it needs to be taken seriously. It's an interesting theory. Here's a different theory. Moses says, must we bring water out of the rock? As if Moses and Aaron do it on their own power and their own strength. In other words, when things happen in life that are good, who gets the credit? You or God? And this is a very important issue uh, in the days, well, still today, but especially in the days of uh, Egypt and the Exodus. Apparently, archaeologists, well, not apparently, they have found, um, they have found a monument by the roadside. And from the time they believe of Pharaoh Seti I, who's going to be very close to the Pharaoh of the Exodus, probably not the Pharaoh of the Exodus, but he's pretty close to that time. And in this monument, Pharaoh says, Thanks to his God who brought water out of the rock at this place on the road. Well, Pharaoh's God can do it, apparently. And so, can the God of the universe do it? Well, the answer is apparently not. Moses does it. Because Moses doesn't give God the credit. It's an issue that God takes very seriously about who gets credit for being God and who gets credit for doing good things. King Nebuchadnezzar rules Babylon. It's a mighty empire. And in Daniel 4.23, he's walking around one day and he says, man, this is some city I've built. That's my translation. But this is, I've really built a neat empire. Look what I've done. And shortly thereafter, 
God takes away Nebuchadnezzar's faculties and he ends up in the grass eating it just like a calf. And it's not until he gets a chance to repent and repents that he is not God that Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his faculties and comes back to his throne. King Herod's grandson is sitting in Caesarea years later during the time of Paul. And some people, Caesarea is a city on the, um, on the Mediterranean. And some people come to lobby him basically to do something for them. And so when he gives a speech, they want to butter him up. And they said, man, this guy sounds like a god. He's no human. He's a god. And according to scripture, Herod didn't protest. He thought, ah, that, that probably fits. And according to the scripture, almost immediately Herod dies and is eaten by worms. God takes this business pretty seriously. It's not as though God has some ego problem. The deal is that God understands that who we worship as God will determine the way we live our lives. So we need to get that right. If we worship success, it will determine the way we live our lives. If we worship material goods, it will determine the way we live our lives. If we worship our family, it will determine the way we live our lives. And if we worship the God of the universe, It will also lead to a way of living our life. We've got to get that right. So that's another theory. Let me give you one more because I just heard this one this spring. It's very interesting to me. God says to Moses, "And take your staff and gather the people together. Take your staff. I go, oh yeah, I knew Moses had a staff. You knew it, right? Throw the staff down, turns into a snake. Touch the red the Nile, and it turns into blood. You know, a number of things happened with the staff. But what I didn't realize is, in uh, ancient days, the staff symbolized the power and might of the ruler. So that Pharaoh had a staff, and so Moses has a staff. And the issue is, how do you act when you have the staff? And Pharaoh uses his power and his staff to threaten people to do violence to people, and through fear and intimidation, establish and continue his reign. And Moses learned this because we're told that when uh, Moses is a young man and he sees um, an Egyptian overseer beating a Hebrew slave, that Moses decides to do something about it. So what does he do? He does what Pharaoh taught him to do. He responds in violence, and he kills the overseer. And so the interpretation here goes that Moses is not supposed to take the staff and act like Pharaoh with the staff. And God doesn't want Moses to lead with force and violence. God wants Moses to lead with love and his word. So it is, speak to the rock and water will come out. But Moses decides to act like Pharaoh and rules not with love, And not with an encouraging word, but with physical force and threat and a lecture shaming the people. And so the theory goes, he's disqualified from leading into the promised land because he's going to lead them just like Pharaoh. And God has seen enough of that over the previous 450 years. I think that's a significant lesson. I'm not saying it is the lesson, but it's significant Because I think so often in the church and in the community of faith, when we run into difficulties, it's because we use Pharaoh methods and not God methods. When we run into trouble, we think about how we handle this trouble at business, how we'd handle it in the community organization, or how we'd handle it 
and in the, in the school, and we go and we try to handle it in a similar manner at the church. Dallas Willard once said this, do you know why there are problems in the church? He said, because people there don't really want to be like Jesus. They want to be like the Pharaoh. They want to do things the way they've learned. And so Moses, when he does what he's learned rather than what God asks, gets disqualified. But the bottom line is, I don't really know. All I know is he's disqualified. But here's something interesting. You know, when Truman's disqualified, he's removed immediately. But God keeps Moses on leading until his death. He just doesn't get to go to the promised land. Is he the only one that doesn't get to the promised land? According to the scripture, 600,000 men. 600,000 men. All the men of fighting age when they rebelled against God in the wilderness do not enter the promised land. And who is their leader? Moses. So where do you find Moses in his life? You find him with his people, even sharing their fate of not entering the promised land. The rabbis say that if you are a man who's made a mistake, and so you know you will not get to go into the promised land because you rebelled against God, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I must have no place in the plans of God. I must not have a future with God at all. But then all of a sudden you look, and your leader, who you know is loved by God and speaks to God face to face, shares your fate. What an encouragement. When they saw Moses disqualified, they must have known he was disqualified from entering the promised land, but not disqualified from the love of God. And they must have drawn the same conclusion for themselves. You see, Moses, as their leader, is an encouragement to them both in his positive example and even when he messes up. And if his people don't get to go in the promised land, he doesn't get to go either. Moses, as a leader, is found where leaders should always be found, right smack in the middle of their people. We Americans have this wonderful notion that our leaders are five miles out in front of us and they're blazing new trails and they're conquering things on our own. It's a wonderful picture, but it's not the Bible. In the Bible, the leaders are with us. They share our joys. They share our pain. They share our faith. May we be found with our people.